Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo, Cleansing, and Protection Magic. Also, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Vince Wilson. And he has a book out called Ghost Tech, and it also looks like he's been in quite a few seances. Thanks for coming on today. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what got you into paranormal investigation? Well, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. You know, the, I grew up in the, um, when In Search Of was one of the number one TV shows. Uh, it was Leonard Nimoy, of course, the best version of that show. And I'm sure we can all agree. Um, and then in the 1980s, there was movies like Ghostbusters and Poltergeist and the idea that uh, parapsychologists were investigating the psychic phenomena. And, of course, you know, In Search of Itself, it was presented as a documentary series. You know, you they told you the Amityville horror was real, and I believed that when I was a kid. And so that is what really got me, you know, TV and books and movies is what really got me into the paranormal. My grandmother was also uh, really into it, and that I'm sure that influenced me as well. Uh, and then in 1998, a friend invited me on a ghost hunt, and I've been doing it ever since. The In uh, 2009, I became a certified parapsychologist for the American Institute of Parapsychology, and when the director retired two years ago, I became the executive director of the American Institute of Parapsychology. And if I, if I get enough interest, I will start certifying parapsychologists again. That is awesome. You know, it was in search of that got me into all this stuff, too, when I was a mm. kid. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it has influenced a lot of people. And now, of course, I have the entire collection of Time Life books, Mysteries of the Unknown, <laughs> and among other, uh, you know, series of books. I have a library of that has to have at least four or five hundred paranormal books in it. As long as, you know, so it's, it's a, it is, I, you could say I'm pretty dedicated to it. <laughs> so, um, what was the beginning part of your um, early investigations like? Huh. Well, the in the early days, you know, we had the internet was uh, it was just nineteen ninety eight, and and you could just start buying things online, you know. So we discovered that you could buy, um, you know, EMF detectors and IR uh, thermometers and that sort of thing. But when I w- when we were investigating places like haunted bridges and and spooky roads and the occasional, uh, you know, haunted restaurant or hotel it became i started to wonder am i doing this correctly is this the right way of doing this and uh it was at that it was at that point i started you know reaching out to people and uh you know reading books on the topic and becoming friends with some of the more prominent uh paranormal investigators at the time uh and you know and i started to apply that to 
you know, uh, my own thoughts on how these could be better still after reading books on parapsychology. Uh, you know, the, the idea that you can, that we live in a universe in which there are rules and anything that exists in that universe has to obey those rules or, or fall within those rules. You know, so if ghosts are real, you know, they, we just don't understand them yet. You know, that's, that's the kind of thought process I've had for a long time. I also research and investigate the supernatural, which is different than the paranormal. So what were some of the investigators and books that uh, pointed you in the right direction? Mm, the uh, I had uh, Troy Taylor's Ghost Hunter's Guidebook, of course. And then there was the Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by Rosemary Allen Guiley. I had, uh, and books by Dale Katzmerich. And there was, uh, you know, a, I wish I, let's see if I could find it. It's actually right, I'm sure it's next to me somewhere, but there is a, uh, parapsychology, the, um, the controversial science was another book that heavily influenced me at the time. I just had to look up the author, but that was a, that was one of the big books that really kind of, uh, pushed me in the direction of, trying to play, apply at, at mu as much as I could uh, paranormal uh, or scientific theory. Have you ever read, um, I think it's Lloyd Auerbach? Lloyd Auerbach, yes. Yeah. He, he, that's another one. Lloyd Auerbach's uh, ESP Ghosts and Spirits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a that is a must-have uh, book for any, any all of Lloyd's books. Uh, are must-have books for anyone who's interested in taking their, uh, you know, next steps into being more than just a ghost hunter. You know, not that, not just a, um, you know, a TV show aficionado, but an actual. Uh, yes, it's uh, Parapsychology: The Controversial Science by Richard S. Broughton, and then uh, I, I, I was mentored under uh, Dr. Barry Taff and Dr. Andrew Nichols. Uh, you know, who kind of influenced me in some of the things I was investigating and moving through. Um, and, but yeah, those, those were the big influences in my early career. In parapsychology, particularly, they look at the uh, phenomenon from a lot of different, different points of view. Like, is it telekinesis? Is it, um, you know, a manifestation of the mind? Is it a psychological thing? Um, did you ever get into like all that part of it? Oh yeah, the, it, all the theories that could explain the possibilities. You know, the the thing is, if you believe that ghosts are souls trapped on Earth with unfinished business, my first question for you is: is what is the criteria for that exactly? Um, for example, if I die, have a heart attack while sending an email, am I going to be stuck on in limbo because I didn't finish sending the email? <laughs> what is the what exactly is considered unfinished business for you? Um, the uh, that's kind of a joke, but also I'm genuinely curious about that. The uh, but if you're if you're studying souls, then um, you have to ask yourself at some point, why am I doing this? Because um, you're never going to prove that. That is a belief. That is a, a supernatural aspect. That's the difference between supernatural and paranormal. Supernatural doesn't need to be proven. Now, you could be doing it for self-discovery, and that's fine. There is nothing wrong with that. That's actually amazing. And you can be have a very fulfilling uh, you know, life as a researcher of the supernatural. But 
if you think that's that's not going to help you prove the existence of ghosts, and it's not going to contribute uh, necessarily, to, except you know your friends and family, and even publish a book at some point, but um, but it's not going to contribute too much other than self fulfillment. And once again, I want to put emphasis on it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a great thing. Uh, but the paranormal, if ghosts are, for example, copies of what we once were, as opposed to the souls of what we once were, you know, you could argue that the soul goes to heaven. You know, that's it. You know, if you're a believer in the Bible, then the Bible is very clear what happens to your soul. It goes to heaven or hell. If you're Catholic, you get the extra option of purgatory. And that's about it. Uh, other than that, you, there's no ghosts or hauntings in the Bible, for example. Um, however, if you can say that ghosts are a copy of what you once were, a imprint, some sort of electromagnetic resonance, then you could argue that um, you know that's something that you can investigate. You could argue that that's something worth looking into because wouldn't it be interesting to to delve into the memories of people from the past if we could just understand how to do that on a regular basis as opposed to the seemingly randomness randomness of it now. Interesting. So, so if it's an imprint, that would be like a residual haunting rather than intelligent haunting. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the, I think in my in, in my book Ghost Tech, uh, I say that the residual and intelligent are related. There are different. There's just it's uh, six layers of information, basically. Uh, all hauntings, if they're, but you know, this is speculating, of course. But if, if hauntings are stored information in the environment, copies of what we once were, then um, it's levels of data that has been recorded of your personality. All right, so residual hauntings would be just repeated patterns going over and over and over again. There's like you can't communicate, you can't. There's no responses. It's just patterns. Level one is just uh, maybe sounds or feelings. You know, like a tapping sound, like that. Level two would be uh, sounds, you know, like, uh, and, but voices, you know. Uh, so, you know, get out or I'm here, help me or something along those lines. And level three would be the apparition, you know, which is, these are the ghosts that passed through walls. Because when they were alive, this is the theory, there was no wall there. Someone built a wall and that's, they're going through their usual pattern of behavior when they were alive. So they seem to pass through it because they're unaware of you know construction had taken place over the decades of the house's existence. Now moving on to intelligent hauntings, level one or <clears throat> level four, if you if you're thinking of along those lines. But level one of an intelligent haunting is uh, once again it sounds, but it's like communicative. Like, are you here? Tap once for yes, twice for no. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you get the idea. That's tapping, yeah. right? The tapping yep. sounds in there. Um, level two would be voices. Are you here? No. Like that. Right. And level three would be an apparition shaking its head or something like this, if it has a sense of humor. Um, you know, but in those in appar intelligent apparitions are the rarest of all hauntings. You can spend your entire life investigating for decades and never run into an actual intelligent apparition where a ghost appears and communicates with you you know actually has experience um and i always take you know claims of that with a grain of salt it's just very statistically unlikely 
uh, to encounter something like that because you can't be sure without continuous investigation that you're actually dealing with an intelligent haunting. And even intelligent hauntings had to be taken with a grain of salt because there's a limits clearly of what level of intelligence they can have. And that's an interesting thing on itself. So why are they so rare? Because it's your required, your, your, you have a, if, if, if they were common, you would see them all the time. You know, there's like, there wouldn't be debated if ghosts were real. You just, you know, sit down and have a conversation with Abraham Lincoln, at, you know, at Ford's Theater, for example. <clears throat> um, or, or stop in a penitentiary or, you know, have a conversation with Al Capone, maybe. But the, uh, they're rare because it's, because the, the argument is that the environment requires a certain degree of, of conditions to be just right. You have to be able to store this information. It, it, you know, the average human being has, you know, in storage capacity of their brain is, is, I don't remember the exact number, but it's thousands of petabytes of information, which is, which is hundreds of, you know, the, you know, large scale PCs. There's no computer that can match the complexity of the human mind. So if you argue that this is data points of information about what this person once was, then the environment, well, the environmental conditions have to be just right to allow to have that much data left behind in which you actually can communicate with a spirit on a semi-regular or any basis for that matter. Okay. So, so, so your view of it sort of is like, um, oh, like, like a, almost like a holographic type of model where, it's, where the apparition is nothing but data. Yes, you could argue that, sure. It's like a hologram. You know, the, and the thing is, like, uh, people want to believe that these are disembodied spirits, that they're souls trapped on Earth, that they have, uh, you know, that they have personalities on a regular basis. But uh, I'm not 100% sure about that because you, you can have a conversation with these uh, ghosts, uh, and there's have been records over thousands of years of these sorts of things happening. Uh, but consider this, okay? Um, if, uh, if you had a ghost and you went in there and you said, mine, it, it's like the most advanced, uh, most of, you know, you know, interactive ghost that you've, like anyone's ever met. It can talk, it can interact, and you can remember your name. All right. Think of this situation as short-term memory in the human brain. Okay. And, or like RAM in a computer. If that if that helps, mm -hmm. in which you have you can you remember something for a short period of time, but then it just passes on to either permanent memory, which requires a storage medium, or fades out of nowhere. Like we we for, people forget things all the time. We're designed to forget. Okay, so you can argue that a ghost is short term memory. Uh, you know, you, you, maybe you can say, "What is your name?" And it says, "My name is Mary." And you say. Mary, my name is, you know, uh, you know, Bob, <laughs> you know, and, and they said, Bob, it's nice to meet you. And you have a conversation that goes back and forth. It's an amazing experience. But would you, if you went back 10 years later, would that still happen? You know, there's, there, and I'll be honest with you, there's no legally recorded evidence of that anywhere. You know, the, the people who actually record, document, and store this sort of thing, you know, there's anecdotal evidence from ghost hunters that suggests otherwise.
But unfortunately, they're not submitting it to journals. <laughs> they're they're just saying, "I this happened to me," you know. And I, but people need at least a little bit more proof than just saying that uh, this happened. But anecdotally, that there is no such thing as a ghost that remembers details about you years later. If such a thing existed, if there was an ability to have regular, continuous conversations with the spirit of that level, then we would have proven definitively that they exist and have more information on how that's possible. Interesting. So when I was a kid, um, the first time I saw a ghost, um, I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe like 10 or 11 years old, and I had a paper route. And one of the places I delivered a paper, oddly enough, was like an abandoned factory. There was a guy that actually lived there and subscribed to a newspaper. And I was riding across, my bike crossed the uh, parking lot at the factory, and I looked over, and I saw my grandmother sort of just floating across the parking lot. She looked over at me, waved, and disappeared. Wow. Yep. So so what kind of category? Like, what would that count as? I mean, I never saw it again. It wasn't residual. Well, there is a phenomenon known as crisis apparitions in which uh, ghosts shortly after death can, you know, leave messages for loved ones. You know, have you ever heard of those before? I haven't. Yeah, crisis apparitions is a is a loved one specifically that appears shortly after their death to pass on a message. This could take the form of an apparition, but it could, you know, although not necessarily, despite the name crisis apparition, it could also appear as a phantom phone call. For example, like you get a you get a message on your phone saying, "Hi, this is your your grandmother. I, you know, I just want to let you know that I miss you. I'm thinking about you always. You know, have a good life." You know, it's or something along those lines. Um, you know, in, in modern times, it could be even an email or an instant message or a text, you know, sent to you from beyond. And that is certainly evidence that that phenomenon has occurred. Okay. So then you are saying that there is life after death. That is a, a possibility. Uh, there's also a possibility that, you know, yeah, of course, there, I'm not dismissing life after death. Not at all. Uh, but the a crisis apparition could be, in theory, a soul before it passes on to its final destination. That's a supernatural explanation. That's something you can't research. It's just something that happened. Alternatively, it could be a a psychic impression at the moment of death. The person has a thought of you, okay, and and is able to send a final message to you in the form of a appearance, a voice. Uh, you know, or, or a message. That's that might explain why, uh, you know, phantom text, which has been appearing, is hard to capture, even with screenshots. Although you you think that you're seeing a text from your grandmother, you know, or aunt, or someone, or friend who passed away, it's you know, if someone was looking over your shoulder, they wouldn't see anything. It's a message specifically for you. That's why crisis apparitions don't appear to groups normally. You could be at the you know, at a restaurant, looking outside the window and on the street corner, you see your your grandmother, uh, you know, pay, you know, waving goodbye. You know, it was you know, blowing you a kiss, and then it just sorts of she just sorts of goes down the street or fades away at that moment or blinks out of existence as she goes on to her final destination. So that's a possibility that it's actually a psychic message, like a you know, psychic voicemail <laughs> to some degree. Um, but, you know, but it's, once again, it's debatable. It's hard to, you know, make a final call on that because we, we just don't know yet. But that's one of the 
prominent theories in parapsychology of what a crisis apparition is. And that sounds like what you may have experienced. Mm-hmm. Either you they stop by to say goodbye on the way up, you know, and out, or they or they say, uh, um, it is a uh, a recording that was psychically sent to you for you to, to interpret. Does that make sense? Um, well, somebody else saw it. Yeah. So I wasn't the only person that saw her. Mm-hmm. Was the so, other person uh, significant to the the person who passed away? Not at all. Oh, interesting. Yeah, could be more to it than that. I mean, it's it's not not in every case. It's you know invisible to only one person. It's just the most common type of crisis apparition. But you might have just experienced something a little bit rare. How about mediumship? Where does mediumship fall, fall into this? There is a one of the predominant theories is that there are certain individuals have who have heightened ability to uh, sense things that they're so, you know it's like a person who gets sick near a uh, power lines for example you know power lines are inherently not dangerous contrary to what you may have been reading and unless you grab them of course but the towers themselves contrary to what you might have read online not going to give you brain tumors okay so let's make that clear. Uh, but a person walking by it who has a like electrohypersensitivity, it's called, um, you know, they might feel ill because they're they're overly sensitive to that sort of electromagnetic field. All right, it's just like people have allergies, uh, you know, to peanut butter. Even though most people can eat it, some people are, it's deadly. Um, so that it is the uh, so there might be people that have a heightened sense of paranormal energy, psychic fields, and that sort of thing. Or they're able to pick up on the minutiae of probability fields that are always around us, the probable actions of things happening, and they're able to pick up on these, uh, you know, uh, these energies that are present around us all the time. Hmm. Are, is the information they provide reliable? It, it Sometimes, but remember that even mediums, no matter, uh, they have personalities they have uh you know they have political beliefs beliefs they have ideas on how the world's supposed to work biases and traits about them that influence their decisions of what they're interpreting you know so they're for the most part they're not getting they're not always getting clear signals so sometimes the information coming in can be biased toward what they think is happening you know, you can have you can have multiple mediums in the same location. All of them regular contributors to you know uh, parapsychology and and psychical research, and yet they might have they might see, hear, and feel the same thing, but have different explanations for why it's happening. One person might say it's a ghost in a classical sense. Another person might say it's a soul trapped on Earth. Another person might say it's an elemental or a spirit or a demon. You know, but they're all experiencing the same phenomenon, but their built-in biases influence their decisions on how they interpret it. You know, a lot of people are influenced more by pop culture, movies, TV shows, books, magazines, and that sort of thing. The internet, a huge influence for people. You know, uh, they're more influenced by these sources than they are about folklore, myth, legend, beliefs, you know, re- you know religion, for example. Uh, they're more influenced by the media than anything else. And I can give you a good example of this. You want to okay. you want to you test mm-hmm. yourself? Yeah. Okay. All right. So tell me something. 
Uh, what is a vampire? Right, so, you, oh, sorry. Let me ask you. Let me rephrase that. What? How do you kill a vampire? Now, don't say stake through the heart or or decapitation because that will kill anyone. <laughs> so, how do you kill a vampire? Sunlight. Sunlight. Good answer. Okay, that's what most people say. Good answer. Okay. All right. So, sunlight. Okay. Right? Now, vampire myths exist in every culture in the world. The uh, every every continent has a vampire legend associated with it, and uh, vampires in Western culture, which is how we normally think of vampires, you know, uh, rising from the dead, sucking the life of the living, um, they are approximately five thousand years old in their origins, or so, maybe a little bit more, but around that's about fair. So in that entire timeline, um, at what point did vampires start to get killed by sunlight? You can say, is it 5,000 years, 2,000 years, 1,000 years, 100 years, et cetera, et cetera? Anytime, what do you think? Just guess the number. I'll go right to the beginning, 5,000. 5,000, okay. So the evolution of ideas is what we're talking about. You know, the, the vampire myth, if you unless you think there are, really are vampires, uh, started 5,000 years ago. But I will tell you, I can actually give you an exact year for when you were killed by sunlight. That was 1921, believe it or not, with the uh, the movie starring Max Schreck, the German expressionist film Nosferatu. All right, most people mm -hmm. th would say Dracula, but that was in 1893, and uh, in the book Dracula, uh, Dracula could walk around in the daylight. He wasn't at full strength, but he wasn't killed by it. He didn't burn from the rays of the sun. That happened in 1921. And the Dracula movie ripoff, sort of, long, it's an interesting story behind that if you look it up. Nosferatu. So, but every, but everyone would they would say sunlight. You're not alone in that. Most people would say sunlight. Um, but and that's it gives you an idea of how pop culture influences this. Um, people have ideas of what ghosts are based on movies, TV shows, magazines, and just because you had an experience where you saw a ghost or had a haunting doesn't mean that you're not being influenced by what you think they're supposed to look like. All right? Uh, so, for example, in ancient Greece, vamp uh, not vampires, ghosts, ghosts were solid. They appeared in a shroud, naked from the grave, or just a shroud that you're buried and wrapped in, wrapped around them. They were solid, maybe pale, but they were just basically corpses that would rise from the the ground, but with but their even though their body was still on the ground, they were they were like this. They looked as they did in life, mm -hmm. except with a shroud around them. You know, years later, this changed. They would appear in burial clothes. They appeared, you know, translucent. And then nineteen centuries when that happened, because it was the era of the magic lantern. Uh, show in which a projected cell would send a ghost onto a and I'm not trying to sound overly skeptical I will have an explanation for this in a moment <laughs> the uh, projecting a translucent figure onto a wall that you could, you could pass as a ghost by those standards at the time um, and that's why people have the idea of the translucent or transparent spirit so why why would the uh, develop you know the evolution of ideas influence our interpret inter interpretation of spirits and ghosts is because it is possible 
that if these are imprints stored in the environment through some unknown means, that they are influencing our perception. Think of a DVD player. I know not a lot of them around anymore, <laughs> but think of a DVD player. All right, you put a DVD into the DVD player, it laser scans the DVD and puts that image up on the screen. Okay? You need a DVD player to play a DVD, correct? Yes. If you had the stored memories of a human being stored in the environment, what would be the perfect playback mechanism? Mm, a projector? No, other human beings. You're the projector. You're close. You're the projector. You know, you are you have the you have the playback device. These are stored memories, a mind stored in the environment, or at least parts of it. All hauntings start off the same way, right? People move in, things start to happen. All right, you never hear of like a realtor being scared out of a haunted house. All right, so uh, it was because they interact with us. You know, we interact with them, and we and we start playing back these stored memories. Is the idea, and we do. And the question you have to ask yourself: Are you seeing a a Are you seeing the ghost and people around you seeing this ghost together, or is your eyes? Pick, you know, interpreting the signals being sent to your brain as an apparition. Is this existing in three-dimensional space or just through your this psychic energy that's present there? So when you and your friend or, or stranger saw the same thing, was it like, was it the energy present affecting you directly and actually projecting this image? You know, if a person had walked by where that spirit was appearing, would they have walked through it because they didn't see it, but you two did? Right. These are questions that are hard to answer. Yeah, they are very hard to answer. Um, I, actually, like right before this episode, I was watching um, Caught on Tape. Mm-hmm. And um, they always have like footage of things moving, um, shadow people, and you know, all the evidence that can be caught on a camera. How is that explained? All right. Well, shadow people is an interesting thing because it's a phenomenon that's only turned up in recent decades like the past 30 years or so so it's it's interesting to make note of that so the evolution of ideas continues new phenomena are reported there's uh you know on a regular basis uh the question i always ask people is are you sure you're seeing like a demon a shadowy figure or is it just a person in the dark you know we look like shadowy figures when we're seen in the dark why wouldn't ghosts? Do you really expect them to glow like Slimer from Ghostbusters? <laughs> or are they going to see a shadowy figure? Um, and it could be the fact that the, the entire environment is affected by this electromagnetic uh, signal, including recordings. Apparitions are very rare to be recorded on video of any type. Uh, sound is more common. Uh, blurry images and electrical disturbances are also very common. But an actual apparition caught, usually they're blurry um, and out of focus. And uh, and that could be just the way that they uh, appear to the electronics, for example. You know, maybe because the it, it, a optical sensor on a camera is a very, very primitive version of the human eye. You could argue that in cameras, the film, the, the, um, the mechanism that records light to that is a very simplified version of the human eye. Yes, the camera doesn't have a brain, especially old film cameras where you literally had to wind them. Right. Uh, but it's but you're still storing information. You're still storing 
uh, radiant light, and that could explain uh, all sorts of different things, like why are they invisible to the naked eye, but then suddenly appear on film. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things is, too, I guess one reason it would be a recent phenomenon is because it's only been in the last 20 or 30 years that cameras have just been everywhere. Yep. So we weren't catching that information before. Exactly. How about <clears throat> EVPs? Why does the voice show up in a recording, but not to the human ear? Well, that's interesting. I think the modern advancements in technology have made that a little easier to narrow down a little bit. It, if Whatever EVP is, it's being recorded at the... Um, the microphone, basically, not the. A lot of people used to think that it was on the, the tape, you know, when it when tape cassettes were very popular, for example. But now we know them to be uh, recorded at the microphone. The reason we know this is because it explains why they're it's they are recorded on any kind of medium, that tapes, videotapes, mic, you know, uh, audio tapes, you know, you know, digital recorders. Anything, you know, cell phones, mobile devices, you know, digital, you know, uh, you know, film cameras, for example, that it still seems to work. So that it has to be, uh, it has to be, that means that some sort of electromagnetic resonance is happening at the microphone. It's also possible it's vibrational, like it somehow vibrates the, the uh, you know, dynamic microphones, the, the, the diaphragm in the microphone that explains it because sound is vibration after all. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, turning on and off of flashlights? Uh, once again, that's a, a form of uh, interaction. I mean, that has to be taken with a grain of salt, too, because any footstep, any movement or vibration in the room can also set those things off, so you have to be mindful of that. Uh, but, the but yes, cat, uh, you know, flashlights being turned on and off by themselves is might be a form of psychokinetic, you know, Activity in which uh, manipulations of probability fields are actually affecting the vibrations in the air, which allows these micro these uh, these flashlights to flicker like they do during like almost like it's having a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. How do you know if the EVP EVP phenomenon, shadow people, the flashlights going on and off, are not actually spirits? but as a result of the observer's consciousness? Oh, that's a good question. You don't. Because the, like, take the Frank's box and similar devices that have random number generators built into it. Uh, parapsychological experiments suggest that random number generators are actually influenced by the desire of the individual, the observer who's present there. So you have a bunch of people uh, looking at these uh, you know, random number generator devices desiring a spooky result. You know, get out. I'm here. You know, help me, etc., etc. Or foot for whatever reason. Maybe someone has a fetish. I don't know. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, they they want something to happen, and you know, so the desire alone could be influencing. That's still interesting, though. That's very interesting. That's still a. a uh, a example of psychic activity, but unfortunately, it's your investigators, not the ghosts. If that's true, yeah. And the reason I, I sometimes kind of lean towards that, is because 
I've noticed that certain investigators will always be getting the same type of evidence. And, you know, like, like one investigator will be like always getting EVPs. Another investigator will always be getting maybe responses through a ghost box. Another one will get more of tapping. So maybe they're creating all these th- things themselves. Yep, it's possible. You know, it's, you can't dismiss that. It's the, the problem with paranormal investigation on the amateur level with ghost hunters and paranormal investigators is that there's, there's no authority. There's no um, oversight. You know, so it's it's hard to make you know it's hard to look into this, and and parapsychologists are getting old now, you know, and, and we need fresh ideas and fresh uh, people in the field. Um, you know, the, the the it's a big problem when there's no oversight. The, a lot when you go to paranormal conferences, everyone says there's no experts, there's no experts, there's no experts. Yes, there are. That's BS. All right, I'll be honest with you. I know it's a controversial topic. But look up the word expert. <laughs> what is an expert? <laughs> an expert is a person with an above average understanding of any topic. Yes, we don't know what ghosts are. But guess what? We have anecdotal evidence that is thousands of years old. You know, we have uh, cave drawings of ghosts. You know, we have people who have researched and examined all the available evidence as much as we can. We have people going out into the field trying to understand and investigate these weird phenomena and having a better understanding of it um but but so yes so for example um if you write a book and or submit information to a a respected journal in science you know or parapsychology you know and you get published out there you're considered an expert you know there it's like saying no experts it's like well then why do we have that word (laughs) <laughs> because a, a you know an expert here's the exact definition a person who has a comprehensive and authoritative knowledge or of a of or skill in a particular area so yes there are lots of experts in the paranormal i consider myself an expert there are other experts out there all parapsychologists are experts there there's there's paranormal investigators who are experts to some degree you know, not to downplay them, but you make you're an expert when you submit stuff, mm-hmm. when you when you publish, when you uh, you contribute. That's what makes you an expert. You know, but having an average understanding that you know the history of the paranormal, the theories, the ideas, the, the you know the beliefs that go into these phenomena you're researching. If you're if yours is like above everyone else, if you actually read books instead of just watching ghost hunting TV shows. I feel like I'm ranting now. <laughs> then you are an expert. And stop saying there's no experts. There is experts. Give it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> so the field has changed a lot. I mean, I don't know when the field actually started. I mean, I think most people, the earliest, well, when you think of the earliest paranormal investigators, they think of the Warrens. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, they weren't very scientific. Yeah. Um, yep. But but it's changed a lot since then. And um, one of the things like, I wonder, like like now, like, like since then versus now, uh, like, like for example, like they were just running around with crosses and holy water and stuff like that. And now we have knowledge of things like quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Um which really kind of changes the whole 
paranormal parapsychology field, in my opinion. In fact, yeah. in a lot of ways, it makes it more possible. It makes the impossible possible. Yeah. And is that taken into account now in the field of parapsychology? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's lots of, in my own book, I talk about uh, quantum mechanics and quantum physics. You know, it's like you, you uh, it, it has to be taken into account and considered. Uh, it is a, it is a very uh, significant advance in science in the past 100 years. Um, you know, so I, I would definitely take that into consideration. You know, some aspects are, we know better now. Um, you know, in the past, we, you know, the people talked about quantum entanglement. And to be honest with you, that's probably not what's happening in psychic mind, you know, mind reading and, and psychic communication and stuff like that. But we, we actually aren't a hundred percent sure it's possible. We know that human consciousness affects reality through, uh, you know, the waveform collapse phenomenon in quantum mechanics with, you know, spooky action at a distance, mm -hmm. you know, there's a popular quote that Einstein made, you know, he uh, said, he said Einstein, uh, he said that Einstein once said that God does not play dice with the universe. And then his colleague, Niels Bohr, responded, Einstein, do not tell God what to do. People <laughs> forget about the reply. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I kind of forgot where I was going now. Anyway, um, so how about some of the tech? Like, like, obviously, your book is called Ghost Tech. Yeah. And, you know, when I've, I, I've also done, you know, quite a bit of, you know, amateur paranormal investigation. And, um, you know, I use, um, you know, EMF meters and EVPs and, you know, checking temperature. Um, sure. And, uh, but one of the things that, 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 you know, I used back then was like, we, we used to have to make our own ghost boxes out of like these AM, FM radios that you buy at Radio Shack. Uh huh. And you'd have to take like the back off and cut certain wires and, and, and then it would just, it would work. Um, but now they have like all kinds of different ghost boxes and things like that. Is that type of equipment reliable? Uh, to be honest with you, no. Because it, I mean, it's, it, it does theoretically what it's supposed to do, but we have no way of telling if it's you or the ghosts infecting it. You know, people, you know, beyond, perfectly honestly, a lot of people are ghost hunting because it's fun. And I want to reiterate this. There is nothing wrong with that, you know, but it, but it, you, but it doesn't make you a researcher. If you're doing this for fun, I have some advice for you. Stop. I repeat, stop going to people's houses. All right, you should not be doing that. You should not be going on to Discord or, or whatever, or Facebook, finding a group of people in your area and then putting a team together. And then one month later or less, you're investigating someone's house because you put up a Facebook page or a website, you know, uh, local ghost hunters, you know, paranormal.com. You know, you, want to, you, you should not be doing that. You're, the average person is not qualified you know, to investigate homes. You should not be doing that. You're, you should not be going to people's houses. There are children. There are, you know, you know, you, you sometimes you're, you're, people are going to these places with barely knowing anything, no background checks on anyone on their team. 
just hoping for the best. You know, just they just go on Amazon and buy tactical costumes and go on Cafe Press to get a, you know, their acronym. You know, local ghost hunting team. You know, uh, LGT or whatever on your T-shirt. You know, and then <laughs> and it's uh, and I get it. It looks like so much fun on television, but don't you should not be going to people's homes. It's like that's wrong. It is unethical. It's immoral. You know, you're you're risking. You know, even even electricians and cable people who go into homes had to be certified, clear cleared with background checks to make sure that they are qualified to go in someone's home. You know, so I, I it's it's fine to go to, uh, you know, abandoned asylums and haunted prisons and restaurants and hotels and and everything else. Just do keep doing that. You're fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to go, if you want to go to someone's house, if you want to investigate the paranormal to that level, you have to get some kind of better training than what's on television. Even the TV people, the people, and I know some of them will tell you the same thing. Don't use us as an example. Like this is, we we've done this for years, and the TV show is entertainment. Mm. Don't be copying this, like this. You know they'll tell you that. So with the TV shows. Um, uh-huh. what do you think of Ghost Adventures? I don't. I haven't watched that since the first <laughs> since the third episode, probably. So, so I it's been years since I watched that. Huh. So I don't. I don't really have a. I I watched uh, the Holzer Files because I was on it. <laughs> yeah, that one's actually that one's a good one though. Yeah. Uh, and a few other shows because I do talking head segments. I don't like the ha- the idea of being committed to a series. I like the Holzer files because they don't have they're not motivated to fake anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, you know the it's and, and you know that happens on some of these shows. You know, uh, it's like and sometimes the even the people per, uh, participating don't know what the you know one hand is doing behind their back basically. So that has to be taken in consideration as well, uh, but the uh, but yeah, the it's 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 very interesting to you know to think about uh, take that into consideration about you know not <laughs> not following those as guidebooks. You know, the TV show should not be your guide on how to investigate at home. Find someone who's certified and qualified with many years' of experience. Verify they are. You know, like, did, did they write a book? Did they uh, contribute? You know, are they associated with a, uh, you know, a an organization that's re- dependable and reliable? And, yes, some of these organizations that have been around for a couple of years are not. So you have to really do your research, do your due diligence. Don't get caught up in the cult of personality. You get suckered in. And then people get hurt. People have been hurt on ghost hunts in people's homes. You know, psych- you know psychological, emotional and occasionally even physical damage has occurred on ghost hunts. I remember a case like 20 years ago where someone fell down a staircase and broke, you know, and crushed their rib cage and had to go to the hospital. You know, and there's other cases in which people have been, you know, uh, criminals, you know, or, uh, you know, or child predators and that sort of thing. And, they, and these were on ghost hunting teams, you know. So take that into in thought, you know, when you're, Putting your team together, you know what qualifies you to go into a home. You know, it's, it's, one, of, it's the things I, one of the things I'm most adamant about. And yes, when you're sitting at home listening to this podcast right now, nodding your head, 
like like you know everything I'm telling you is right. Seriously consider possibility of talking about you. I mean, your listeners, of course. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I have investigated homes. I never really gave it much thought. Yeah. Um, it's something to consider. I mean, you're, you know, I'm sure you, you, most of the time, it's innocent. You know, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But th- these people are also looking for answers. And the question you have to ask yourself, are you qualified to get the answers? I'm not just a, you know, a paranormal investigator, a parapsychologist, and occasionally seance, uh, you know, host. I'm also a therapist. You know, I, I know hypnotherapy. And I work in a clinic, you know, that, uh, and I pay clients, <laughs> you know. So I know how to interact with people. I know how to handle most situations. I know how to, uh, you know, talk to families about, uh, you know, uh, they, they, you know, what is going on in their home. Do you have that kind of training, you know, or anything close to it? Is there a, a therapist? And remember, there are there are nurses, you know, who are who have some medical training for emergency medical procedures, you know, that you know that have gone to to school for uh, you know for years. Uh, and went, you know, and work in hospitals that have the craziest ideas on how medicine works. We call it male or female, doesn't matter, like whatever uh, gender, you know, they have the craziest idea on how medicine works because they're not doctors, you know. So there's, you know, so there you, you have to be more, uh, you know, definitive in who you trust to be on your investigation team. So. Oh, you could just run a background check. Well, yeah, but even then, you know, like like I said, there, there there's recent reports of nurses like in hospitals, like uh, with all sorts of strange. I don't want to go into politics, but all sorts of strange ideas on how the world works, and uh, and people are getting hurt because of that, you know. And the a background check, they will pass a background check. You know, they didn't they didn't do anything wrong yet. But you should you should work with them a little bit. You know, have them. I, I recommend, for example, let's say you're trying to start a paranormal research team, buy some books, look for procedures that people. I'm not, not trying to say you have to buy my book, but you know it does have information in there on how to do this. Ghost Tech, for example, has information on how to start a team, and uh, and try to get the level of qualification up. Read books, look at procedures, have regular meetings where everyone has to get together so you can figure out what kind of people you're working with all right you they should have a diverse uh thought process ideas and beliefs on what ghosts are people some people might think it's supernatural some might think it's paranormal some might you might have person doesn't think ghosts exist you know a skeptic but not a debunker you know it's it's just weird (laughs) so uh you can have (laughs) these people working together uh, on a greatly diverse and, uh, you know, a team that can, uh, you know, bring different ideas to your organization. But you should work with them to try to get an idea of their individual personalities. You know, make sure that you don't have someone that's, like, really creepy on your team, for example. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. Like, I know the group that I, I belong to. We did meet once a month. and Yeah. You know, we, we didn't just take anybody. Sure. But, um, so, 
I don't know. I just never really gave that part of it much thought. Um, how about the demonology side of it? Do you believe that there are demons? I believe in the possibility of almost anything. You know, the I said when it go for the most part when you're talking about demons, you're talking about the supernatural. You know, because demons are you know supposedly from belief. You know, the Bible. You know, the Quran, the the Torah. You know, they're they are uh, all sorts of myths from all around the world have uh, legends and stories of demons. So, um, so are demons evil, uh, angelic fallen angels? Well, that's not. It's technically not in the Bible. That's more of uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, other sources of fiction, more than actually belief or stories or or canon as far as those belief systems or canonical examples of those beliefs in religion and faith. All right. Once again, pop culture influencing you more than the actual original ideas and concepts. Um, so it's possible demons are actually evil spirits uh, from hell or some other hell-like uh, reality. Or it's possible they were just jerks in real life and they are jerks when they're dead. <laughs> and that's what you're dealing with uh, you know it's that's also a theory or possibility that it, uh, demons are actually just very corrupted individuals who are corrupt awful beings when they're alive and right. they're still awful when they're dead um, and it's it's uh, it's, it's it, demons are extremely rare phenomenon all right and uh, and, and of course uh, I have been on cases in which there was the de uh, demonic activity. Um, I've seen things that hint at the possibility of demons, uh, but it's not like in the movies. You're not going to see the mouths stretch open to swallow a child, or you know, or the levitations and and Latin's being spoken to you and that sort of thing. It's uh, it's more subtle than that, or uh, or random, you know. And it's also often confused with other phenomenon, you know. Some uh, there's poltergeist activity that's often confused by some people as demonic activity so you have to be very mindful of you know what you think you're seeing does that make sense oh absolutely what have you seen that you thought might be de demonic but well, I, I was i don't want to give away locations but there was a church in a major city uh it was a uh uh you know it, i was invited to it was a Spanish-speaking church. I didn't, uh, and uh, I had to have a translator with me because I don't. Unfortunately, I don't speak fluent Spanish. I wish I did. Um, and there was a a girl there from uh, a South American country. Like I said, I'm trying not to give out too many details because I don't want to. Like uh, I'm not supposed to reveal this place or location, but you know, she did things that were very unusual, but not necessarily beyond the ability of human beings. She spoke. Latin, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, and English, which are all languages she could have picked up to some degree in South America. Many churches in South America up until that point were still uh, teaching and speaking Latin in church, for example. So there's no reason she couldn't have picked up the Latin from there. Portuguese and Spanish were obvious. She was from a country near Brazil uh, where she could have picked up the Portuguese aspects of it. Uh, and Spanish, of course, was her native language. And English, she was in the United States for a couple of years before she started experiencing this. Now, she did contort and, and bend in weird ways, but she also did not levitate into the air. 
So, uh, so it's it's that's something I definitely saw, and I've been to locations where it's been really you know temperature changes and, and things have been moved and thrown across the room. Uh, it had experiences where uh, it's been possible it might have been what you might call demonic activity, but it's also possible it could have been um, uh, you know a high energy poltergeist activity. What would be the difference between high energy poltergeist activity and demonic activity, and how would you tell the difference? It's hard to tell the difference sometimes, but poltergeist activity will always be around a specific person, and that's why it's hard to define it from a demonic activity, because it's also that's also usually around a specific person when you're talking about an oppression or possession. A uh, a poltergeist or PK. Uh, case you know poltergeist being german for noisy ghost but it's not really a ghost it's a the psychokinetic manifestation of subconscious specifically the id aspect of our subconscious that's why it's random uh and it seems to be uncontrollable when people are are hit and beaten or or worse in some of these poltergeist cases it's actually a weird manifestation of subconscious very freudian jungian sort of psychological aspects occurring during these cases. Hmm. Um, so, so what are some of the, um, what is some of the best evidence that you have collected on your investigations? Uh, voice, a lot of EVP, some pictures and video here and there, but mostly EVP. Um, you know, I used to collect haunted objects uh, years ago. Uh, the, <clears throat> I've never had activity happened with them once they were stored away um, but the, uh, it used to be something I was uh, you know not you know not unknown to do <laughs> was to collect these things uh, but yeah it's like I had I've had uh, more experiences with fellow investigators like at the Waverly Hills Santorum where we saw a shadowy figure walking directly toward us as we investigated the third floor wow did you get it on camera Unfortunately, no, because there was it, it was it's a long story, but to keep it short, we were told by a previous investigator that we could not have any lights on, and this is what this was like two thousand five. So our the cameras we did have were not good. Uh, now, for those who do not know, uh, there are some exceptions in today's camera technology, but back then we were using infrared cameras, and infrared cameras emit infrared. The, the less expensive it is, the more likely this is a thing that you're getting. Only military cameras do not emit infrared. This, this is how it works. It, a sensor below the lens actually broadcasts invisible infrared light into the environment. All right? This reflects off surfaces. It's beyond the scope of human beings to be able to see. And that's what you see when you see these green-hued videos. All right? That's infrared light being reflected back into the camera. So it's still emitting light. It's just a light you can't see with the naked eye. All right. The original purpose for a panel investigating with this was that perhaps different types of wavelengths may make ghosts invisible in some cases. And that's it's not a bad idea. Um, so, but unfortunately, because we were told specifically that no light other than a laser pointer could be emitted... We had to not, we couldn't use those cameras, and that's all we had. We tried, we had, we put it on regular settings in which it was just picking up light, but it was basically we were just recording blackness. We saw 
a little red dot in the distance, but we did not see the apparition we were witnessing. Why do you think that place is so haunted? The, the sheer number of ghosts that, that died there, thousands over years. So you think they're all human spirits? I Well, I think they're definitely imprints. You know, the... Uh, I think they are, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, information left behind that could be, uh, you know, human, inform human information, aspects of what those people once were embedded in, embedded in the environment. I apologize. My allergies are acting up today. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I apologize for the dogs in the background. Oh, no worries. But, uh, but yeah, it could be, it could be as simple as that. Wow. So, um, how about witchcraft? Is witchcraft dangerous? Um, it depends. There's, you know, witchcraft is a, uh, has lots of wonderful, uh, you know, people involved in it sometimes that have, you know, nothing but the best interests of their friends and family involved that are doing it for self-fulfillment reasons. Um, uh, it depends on the intentions of the individual, just like any faith, you know, there's certainly Christians who are murderers and voodoo practitioners who are, you know, altruistic benefactors. You know, it's really hard to make a judgment call on that. So, yes, the uh, uh, witchcraft has good and bad. Just like, you know, any religion or faith that has members of their denomination. There's good people and there's bad people, you know. Uh, so, yes, witchcraft is not inherently dangerous. It's the intention of the people practicing witchcraft that can be dangerous. You know, so let's make that clear. It's like Ouija boards are mm -hmm. not inherently dangerous. You know, there's the intention of the user. You know, people say, I had a bad experience, I'll never use it again. And the question I have to ask them when they say that is it, would that have happened if you weren't using a Ouija board? Are you sure it wouldn't have? What if you used a pendulum or an EMF detector? You know, I've had weird, possibly interpreted as bad things happen with no Ouija board present. You know, lots of people have. Like, what's the thing about the worst thing that's ever happened to you during a paranormal investigation that you you believe was the ghost being hostile or something along those lines? And ask yourself, well, I didn't have a Ouija board there, but I still keep investigating. I don't stop using the equipment I had, but people associate Ouija boards with some kind of evil for no reason because they are safe. I'm not saying go out and buy one, but there's nothing harmful about them. They are as, they're as harmful as EVP is. In fact, I would argue that most investigators do more dangerous EVP investigating than they do with a Ouija board because Ouija boards have rules. And one of those rules is always know who you're going to talk to. But it, with an EVP, what, what's the first thing that people say when they do an EVP experiment? Is there anybody here? Exactly. Those words are dangerous. If you believe in demonic activity and evil spirits or shadow figures, then you're literally inviting anyone here, you know, into your circle. But a Ouija, a Ouija seance would be, you know, hey, I'd like to talk to the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. And that's your focus. And no one else is going to show up because there's rules and ritual involved. So, how about people that purposely conjure demons? Like, uh, I interview a lot of people that practice, like, black magic and will conjure, like, you know, demons like, like that Alistair, Alistair Crowley came up with and things like that. Is that sure. type of activity dangerous? 
it, it, sure, it can be. You know, if it's especially if you definitively believe in it. You know, it's like it's you have to take that with a grain of salt, of course. But yeah, the uh, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're inexperienced, if you're not an expert, you could get really hurt. You know, doing things like that, you could scar people and, and possibly psychologically scar yourself as well, at the very least. Now, obviously, this once again this is one of those rare phenomena because we don't hear in the news every day about the family that was killed by demons. You know, it's like so. It's something that just usually doesn't happen uh so uh but there is there's certainly risks in other ways you know from uh being involved in these types of cases so what is some of the psychological effects um that um any type of paranormal can have on people well the thing is you are buffered in your mind by doubt you know that hallucinations exist you know that People imagine things or desire things so much they make it real. You know, you know, you've heard stories like that. Everyone knows these things, all right? You grow up and you understand that, you know, how things work. A child, a baby doesn't know anything. It doesn't know that people can't levitate until they're told they can't. You know, the, the, a child doesn't know that things don't disappear and reappear until they're told they don't. All right, and we accept these things as reality as we get older. Even the firm believers, the ones who say, hey, "I believe in ghosts and I've had experiences," there's still doubt. There's a little bit of doubt there, just enough to affect you psychologically, so that you're buffered, that you're not going crazy. But what if you experience something that was undeniably supernatural, where you're face to face with something that is demonic and horrible, and there's no no possibility at all that it's your imagination. All right? Could you handle the psychological trauma of that? You know, if you say yes, then I doubt that you've had that kind of experience yet. That you right. have, you still have that little smidge of doubt. I have you know? to say yes, though. I think I definitely handle it. Sure. You know, it's a, but it's, you, you hope so. You know, we all do. You know, I'd like to think that I could handle it. <laughs> nah, I know but, I could. I, I, I suffer maybe a little bit from overconfidence, but... Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I've been looking for that experience my entire life. I'm waiting. I'm dying to have that experience, that one paranormal, supernatural, whatever you want to call it, thick experience that's going to completely blow my mind and convince me that reality isn't real. Or is not what I think it is. And I think that's what most a lot of people are looking for. Yep. That's I, I think you're right, but also I would say be careful what you wish for. Why? Because you just might get it. You know, the uh you know, wishing thinking that you can handle like so many, many years ago, the first mass shooting happened in the United States. All right? Mm-hmm. All right, the uh, a a guy was going down the street, uh, you know, shooting everyone in his town. I will actually look up this, uh, you know, information so I can tell you the name. So you can look, do the research yourself. <coughs> so, do, 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 do. it's chess or something. I just gotta look it up. Hold on. I thought it was somebody in the college in Ohio. Hmm. 
Howard Unruh. Howard Unruh is what it was. Yep. All right. So Howard Unruh, you know, goes down the street shooting people left and right. He killed several people, 13 people, as a matter of fact. Okay. Uh, he was a war veteran. Uh, he, and he just kind of lost his mind one day. He just went down shooting up the neighborhood, killed kids and, and men and women. It was terrible. There was a guy up in the window who, uh, who was a trained hunter. He had a rifle. And he, he put Howard, a killer, who was already had killed several people, into his sight, took aim and fired and shot him in the buttocks. And, you know, actually, it injured him, for sure. It didn't take him down, though, mm-hmm. because unlike in movies, you get shot and still keep walking around. Yeah. So, so he was still going about. And he, what happened was Howard turned around and looked the shooter right in the eye. You know, and this guy, he had this gun in his shop all this time. He had, he probably fantasized about the idea of like, if anyone ever came out of my shop, I want to take him out with this rifle. You know, they think about that like they're an action hero from a movie. Mm-hmm. Until, although Howard was a monster. He was a monstrous human being. And when he looked that person in the eyes, you know, he, everything changed because the, it was, it was take that shot and definitively kill another human being, despite that human being being a terrible murderer. You know, he, he, this person who had hunted and been trained with guns and could easily have taken that killing shot and ended this reign of terror could not bring himself to end someone else's life. Uh, that's an interesting analogy because you could have these fantasies. Like, if I ever had this experience, you know, if I ever met a demon or an angel or a ghost, you know, I think I could handle it because I could, I would know for a fact for the rest of my life that, yes, this, this is real and I had experiences like that. But you got to ask yourself, like that guy who had that gun in his hand, you know, will I react the way I think I will? Or will reality force me into, uh, you know, mental health situations <laughs> where I had to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. That guy had to live with the guilt of the rest of his life. But on some level, he felt, I'd be, I feel more guilty about killing someone. And he couldn't do it. And, and there's people listening right now, I'm sure, who are, you know, own guns and are like, I would have done it. I would have saved, I would have been a hero. You actually don't know that. You know, you don't know how you're going to react until you're forced into that scenario. You know, everything else is just like a fantasy until that happens. And right. everyone has to think about that. You know, can't, will you react the way you do? Like, you're not, you're not going to be a superhero. You know, you're going to, you're probably going to pee your pants <laughs> at the very least. Hmm. So. I don't know. I, I kind of think of it like, like I know people that have been in worse situations and I've never talked to anybody who liked killing anyone. You know, no. like, like no, no soldier really. I've ever talked to enjoyed it, you know. Yeah, um, but yeah, the, but also when applying that to the theory of seeing a ghost or a demon or a monster, you know, would you 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 think about how would you react to that scenario? You know, I will I will be brave. I will have I will be excited. I'll be happy because I see this thing. Like so, you, I, I ask people say like, let me ask you a question. Would you like to to meet an angel? Sure. Are you sure? Because if you met an angel out of the Bible, you're not going to see 
the Renaissance painting, Angel, you're going to see a terrifying, gigantic monster with four faces of an angel, of a man, a bull, a goat, uh, you know, in some cases, and uh, and other animals. I don't remember all of them, but yeah, it'll, it'll have six, like you know, a hundred wings and and fire all around it. It's like most people can't handle that. <laughs> uh, you know, most people couldn't react to the the visage, the the appearance of an angelic being as a you know. I think they would not handle that well at all. Well, you have to work yourself up to it. That's right. Yeah, like maybe they'll send a letter first, let you know coming next week. Um, That'd be nice. Yeah, or start out small. <laughs> you know, first um, go out looking for elves and shit like that, and then yeah. and then upgrade to angels. Yep. Um, in fact, I, you know, I think even as a paranormal, you know, I think that's sort of how paranormal people kind of work. Anyways, they kind of start out. You know, doing little things to kind of work their way up. Yep. <sighs> um. So, so what um, advice does your book give to people that want to start a paranormal investigation group? It tells you how to create forms for documenting. Yeah, it shows you how to make a grid of a room. So you can find the locations of of normal or artificial sources of uh, fields like electromagnetic fields or heat sources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It tells you how to properly use equipment. Um, you know, I've been a very big advocate of telling people to stop buying voice recorders on eBay. Start using your phone. Your your most mobile phones have microphones that far are far more sophisticated than anything from, you know, as far as digital voice recorders are concerned. You know, and they also have unlimited storage when you connect them with the cloud. Mm -hmm. So why are you buying something that has limited storage, which has worse sound devices? Use your phone, use a laptop, use a tablet. All the, you know, plug a, a, a nice microphone into it and upgrade it, you know, significantly. Way better than spending a couple hundred dollars on a stupid voice recorder. You know, that's the kind of advice you'll get from the book. Hmm. They can always reach out to me, too, through the website at ghosttech.com. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> one of the things, like, I during my, my, my house investigations, uh, one of the things that I've always found was just bad wiring. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Even in my own parents' house. You know, there was one dining room. I always hated their, their dining room. It always creeped me out. And when I got an EF in, in, in the, um, an EMF meter, I just discovered it was just bad wiring. Yep, and refrigerators on the other side of walls. You know, those are things people don't think fourth dimensionally. They don't think of they think they look at the room. They think this is the room, and everything outside of it, it doesn't exist. But you have to be aware of the fact that certain devices, like K two meters, can be set off by garage door openers. Mm hmm. Yeah, anything can set them off. People put their phone in airplane mode, but they should be turning them off. You know, most people are just so attached to their phones now, they can't even imagine turning it off. What about some of these uh, ghost hunting apps that they have on phones? Oh, they're they're not that great either. I mean, good, they're okay for having fun. But once again, they're, they're you know, imagine like a, a app that's supposed to use these sensors that are placed around your phone. So you have, think about the, 
the inside of a mobile device. So some phones have geomagnometers and magnetic sensors and GPS sensors. Uh, some don't. So this this the app is supposed to, you know, try to sense electromagnetic fields around it on this, on different configurations for every different phone. How, like, how do we know that'll work on your phone? You know, it's just it, it, is it readings accurate? No, they're not. They're never accurate. Hmm. So you're better off going with the old fashioned tri field. That is correct. How about radiation? Uh, radiation is, uh, you, know, it ref- you know, it has to be taken into account. You have uh, cinder blocks that, you know, cinder blocks actually have a mild radiate radioactive uh, nature to them, believe it or not. So do bananas for some reason. <laughs> That's weird. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look that up. It's interesting. Hmm. Uh, but uh, background, radi- you know, radiation in high degrees are, is harmful. But uh, most background radiation, you know, is not. You know, the uh, cell phone towers, uh, you know, things like that, they don't give off enough to actually hurt you. We, we're actually conditioned through evolution to have a certain degree of, of uh, resilience to radiation. Think about the sun. You know, as long as you yeah. don't get burnt, you should be fine. You know, but we're exposed to solar radiation, cosmic rays on a regular basis. If you fly in an airplane, you're more radioactive because you're closer to space. That's true. It's a, it's a fact. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but but we're we're allowed. We can accept a certain degree of radiation. You know, we're not exposed to plutonium on a regular basis. Uh, wireless signals from, uh, you know, your mobile device is not going to give you a, a brain tumor. Um, but the uh, but the radiation from uh, is interesting. Because sometimes it does show up in paranormal investigations. Uh, I've used, uh, you know, Geiger counters before. And you, what you're looking for with all these devices, any device, and it's not detecting ghosts directly, but detecting their influence on the environmental conditions as you investigate. So when you're, an EMF detector isn't detecting a ghost, it's detecting its movement through existing electromagnetic fields. People forget that. They think they're Egon's PK meter, and they're not. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Um, all right. Um, so before we wrap this up, uh, where can my listeners find you? Oh, ghosttech.com is the easiest place to find me at. You know, I'm there all the time. I'm thinking about doing some virtual seances again soon. I do seances on a regular basis in Baltimore. And I'd love to, if you'd like to talk about setting one up for your your group or friends and family, let me know. Um, and also, I'm available. For, and I, like I said, if I get enough interest from people wanting a parapsychology certification, I will start. I will bring them back up again and start certifying people. That's cool. Like, like how long does it take? A few weeks to a couple of months, maybe. I had to look delve into it again to see how I could accommodate the the use of uh, you know the website that we have. It, it's a uh, parapsychologylab.com you know to see if we can like hook that up with a uh, some sort of teaching school uh, you know uh, online classes for example but it could take it, it, it would be that long it would be spending a year on it but I will have to look into it but once again it's only if people are really interested in it I think oh, a lot of people unfortunately are they're more interested in being ghost hunters than they are parapsychologists these days oh, well, I think it's good to know all angles of it yeah. I would do it. Yep. 
Well, thanks okay. for taking the time to be on tonight. Oh, it's it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Likewise. And, I like to be um, on again sometime. Absolutely. And just hang on for one second, and I'm just going to play the right. outro. Thank you.